Hey, how's everyone doing? Matthew Castanetti here, host of the MCAST podcast. And uh, welcome on to episode two. You know, hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed episode one with uh, David Seifer and Matthew DiLuigiusino. We had a great conversation going on local politics in New Jersey. But now we're going to switch up a little bit and uh, head over to the, uh, the great state of Kentucky. And I got two of the biggest liberty activists known throughout the state in T.J. Roberts and Chris Wiest. They're my guests today for this episode. Um, Chris and uh, TJ, how are you guys doing today? Good. Good. Doing well. Thanks for having us on. No, of course. It's always great to have you on. I mean, TJ, I know, I've known you, you know, through uh, the liberty circles back in Young Americans for Liberty, and of course, Chris through TJ. Um, so just really to get things started here, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in Kentucky. I mean, politically speaking, you guys are, you know, tend to be more liberty-minded or, I guess, better off, in my opinion, than New Jersey. Um, but for some reason, except for the mask mandates, you know, in Kentucky, as of this recording, they finally ended it just today, even though back in New Jersey, they ended it like, I want to say on the 28th, at least outside of public schools. But just, I really wanted to uh, really touch upon, um, you know, what you guys did during the lockdowns, because I know this was like a year long ordeal, I mean, essentially ever since the pandemic started. So, you know, just, just tell me a little bit more about what you guys have been up to the past year regarding, regarding uh, Kentucky. Well, you know, I'll let TJ jump in um, and talk about Easter Sunday. I, you know, it, it for me, it started a little bit before then. I got a call from a, um, one of our state representatives um, in March of 2020, and um, she was concerned. Um, she's a Liberty Warrior, uh, Savannah Maddox, and she was concerned that they were getting ready to leave. We have a part-time legislature in Kentucky. I don't know um, about other states, but our legislature's in only you know January, February, March on um, some years, January to April, other years, um, and then they're 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 out the other eight or nine months of the year, and they were getting ready to break. and And she called me. She's like, "I'm starting to get concerned about what the governor may do." And um, um, I I wrote her some language. I was concerned too about what the governor may do once the legislature left town. Um, and the governor kind of did what everybody thought he might do when the legislature left town. And that was, you know, um, started issuing a number of orders, kind of locking everything down, picking and choosing winners and losers, you know, the, leaving the abortion clinic open, closing down all, all other elective medical procedures, just all kinds of stuff, right? There was an entire list. And if you looked at it really carefully, what you would find was generally things were more lax for the people that had supported his campaign and were more stringent for the industries that, that were not as supportive of his campaign. And so it, it looked kind of, you know, political to me. Um, but as you're probably aware, right, like everyone was losing their mind in March and April of 2020 in terms of just this COVID thing, you know, grandma's going to die. We all got to stay home. Yep. You know, I mean, and then Easter Sunday hit, and uh, and I'll let TJ tell you about it from his perspective, and then I can talk to you about the phone calls I received that Sunday, which which started for me a, um, um, you know, kind of my involvement. But I'll let TJ tell you about his involvement Easter Sunday. Yeah. yeah so, so the governor um, put out an order that banned all mass gatherings, and he later clarified that that included church services. Um, particularly, he indicated that Easter Sunday was also off limits and that if you went to church on Easter, Kentucky State Police was going to put a flyer on your windshield that will order you to 
quarantine for two weeks or you will face up to one year imprisonment under KRS 39A, which is the emergency statute in Kentucky. Um, I decided that that was not going to deter me from going to church and I drove to Maryville Baptist Church. It was the closest church that was open for me. And I when just I went to church. I worshiped on the on Resurrection Day and I went out of out to my car and sure enough there was that flyer there and uh on the drive back I called Crystal oh, this just saying what do we do now and uh Crystal expanded upon it was to uh sue the governor in federal court yeah in fact TJ TJ was one of the three um folks who called me that all went to that church service I think they might have coordinated it they might not have I'm not sure again there was only a couple churches that were defying the governor uh, at that point in time and uh, that started a fight um, he also had a travel ban he restricted people from leaving the state or coming into the state unless for work and yeah know, New Jersey did uh, they tried to do the same essentially I mean they they tried to, they understood like how unconstitutional like a full-on travel ban would be between states so they quote recommended that you stay you know stay quarantined with 14 days but obviously Lord knows how many people actually did that um, so but for some reason in Kentucky of all places you know it seems like the governor took it you know a step above that so and, and I thought that was really interesting. He actually criminalized the crossing of the border. I mean, he basically imprisoned 4 million Kentuckians within the state. And I, you know, um, and it didn't matter, right? Like if I were, if I was going to get, I mean, so, there are places in Northern Kentucky in particular with TJ and I live where it's actually quicker to drive over to Ohio and then back in. And, you know, you might not have any contact with any other person, but that was criminalized. Um, so if I started in my County, and to get over to Campbell County, Kentucky, which is which is right next door, sometimes it's, it's faster to take you know the interstate, which which loops around in Ohio. The governor actually criminalized that, um, criminalized interstate travel, and, and you know was punishable by a year in jail if you did it. And uh, so I, you know, we threw that claim in, into this lawsuit as well. I was like, there's no way that that's constitutional. Um, did the research on it. It wasn't constitutional. Which well, I was going to ask also, because, you know, even though Andy Beshear obviously is a Democrat governor, but, you know, Republicans dominate in both the House and the, you know, and the Senate, you know, with essentially veto-proof majority, correct me if I'm wrong. So, you know, I, I, I don't know how, unless, you know, he was able to get enough Republicans to support, you know, these mandates or, you know, to criminalize uh, state border crossings. Like, how was he able to do that? Like, was it through, like, an executive order? Was it through, you know, just a stroke of a pen? That was the problem, right? They The legislature was leaving right about the time that the COVID thing was, was ramping up. It was towards the end of the session. I think there was enough time for them to to uh, to rein the governor in before he got out of control, and obviously, so a couple of representatives tried to do that. Um, but but as it turned out, right, like they left town and they kind of left it to Andy to do what Andy did. And, and there was a, there was an emergency power statute in Kentucky. There still is. Um, it's been changed. It was just changed slash legislative session. But um, there's emergency power statute that basically allowed the governor to declare an emergency, determine how long it lasted, determine what the response was, and to do a whole bunch of craziness. In, in response to it, which is what he used to sort of pick and choose the winners and losers to, you know, to look at the businesses and, and to shut down the churches and the travel ban and, and everything else that he did. So he used the executive orders to do all this stuff. Um, he was a, you know, a prolific user of, of executive orders and, um, you know, and then, and, and, and we, 
I knew at the time that our judiciary in the state was very, very liberal. It is very liberal, um, you know, and, and knowing that, I knew that, um, you know, the state court wasn't going to be a great option in terms of, you know, a long-term benefit. So in the, in the early days of the pandemic, I launched, I think, two or three federal lawsuits on mm-hmm. two, or three, two or three different things in federal court. The church ban was the first one because I thought it was the most egregious. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, right? Like, if you look around, um, there was other governors that were, that were doing the same thing. You know, Cuomo did it. Um, you know, Newsom did it out in California. I think your governor did it in New Jersey. Yeah, Murphy, yeah. <laughs> Murphy did it. Um, you know, Nevada did it. And, and people started filing these same lawsuits nobody was really getting any traction and they were kind of losing these lawsuits on the church side of it. We actually, we were successful in striking down the travel ban in the, in the, in the trial court in the federal district court, but he actually upheld the church ban um, in the first instance. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like that's a problem. So we well, took it. What was the basis on that? Said it was neutral and generally applicable. And if it's neutral and generally applicable, as opposed to a discriminatory treatment, um, you know, uh, they, they get to succeed. And I said, no, it's not. I mean, if you look at, I mean, he had secular exceptions that he was playing games with, you know, and he would say, you know, for the benefit of, of, of all doubt, the following are not mass gathering locations, you know, grocery stores, cause you're transitory, but airports and bus stations, even though you're sitting together for an hour, just like in church, that doesn't really count because eventually you're going to travel, you know? And I'm like, what? Like it's the same what? fundamental activity, like no way does that work. And so, um, so we actually took an emergency appeal to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the federal court of appeals right below the Supreme Court. It handles all the federal appeals out of Ohio, Michigan, Tennessee, and Kentucky. And I got a Saturday at order on like in early May of 2020, published decision, um, restored in-person church service all over Kentucky, told the governor that he couldn't criminalize it. Um, kind of a big deal. Right. And it actually became the basis um, and was cited in the uh, in the in a bunch of U.S. Supreme Court dissents that followed through the summer. And obviously the court that court makeup, there was there was five to four decisions with Chief Justice Roberts saying that the governors could ban church. And then, um, you know, obviously Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Um, Amy Coney Barrett uh, replaced her in, in, in September, October of 2020. And then, and then the spring, you know, I think the, 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 the grounds were set for the Cuomo decision in November, which actually cited the, it's known as the Roberts case after TJ here, um, cited the, cited the Roberts case and, uh, you know, kind of said that no governor anywhere in the state could do it as of November, 2020, the U S Supreme court sort of, sort of changed gears on that. But I mean, it was, it was a, you know, it was a slog and, and for six to nine months, most of the governor's oh, argument. Yeah. The, uh, where the Constitution just didn't apply in a pandemic under under Jacobson, and so we were just sort of we were battling that you know argument that that preposterous argument that no one has any constitutional rights in a pandemic. It's, yeah, which which leads me then to this question because proponents of uh, the lockdowns are people who you know are, were more open or supportive of uh, you know exp- uh, giving these governors expand emergency powers. They argue that I believe someone in the Constitution. I mean, I'm not. I'm probably not as well versed into it as you are. You know, in terms of the text, but there was like some. I think there was like some provision where it said like in the event of like some emergency or something like that. Like there was like an exception that could be granted for you know these state executives to you know 
essentially take up temporary power, emergency powers to essentially do as they please, as long as it was for the greater good or whatnot. So, you know, what would you say, what would you say to, I guess, counter that, to counter those arguments? So, and in, in these, these aren't things that I would say, these are things that I did say in, in, in court pleadings, right? There were, there were case decisions. First of all, a lot of the problem came about as this, uh, uh, by a case by the name of Jacobson. It was a forced vaccination case out of Massachusetts. They weren't actually strapping people down. They were fining people $5, and it was under the substantive due process clause. And it was, you know, substantive due process claims are very, very deferential. But, but I actually went back to some of the Civil War cases, um, Ex parte Milligan, I think. And, you know, the Supreme Court did not even allow Abe Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War to suspend habeas corpus. You know, that what could be more of an emergency than an uprising, right, an active insurrection? Yeah. And, you know, in the Supreme Court, you know, there was there was case law from that case that says that, no, I mean, you can't suspend habeas corpus just because there's a civil war, um, you know, and, and emergency, you know, the emergency doesn't give rise to do whatever you want. And, uh, you know, and so we you know, we pushed back on that. We eventually, obviously, I think the Roberts case, getting that early win in early May, um, established that the constitutional rights applied in the Sixth Circuit, at least during the pandemic. I mean, but we were battling that, at least initially. And, um, you know, there was a follow-on case. Um, the governor was allowing Black Lives Matter protests at the Capitol, but yet banning people that were protesting his lockdowns. Uh, one was necessary in his view. The other was not. Um, in my view, it was blatant viewpoint discrimination. And, um, yeah. you know, so we sued him again for that. That was the Ramsey case, um, you know, and he, uh, you know, he uh, he lost that one too. Um, I mean, it just, you know, it's just been a constant slog with him. We filed a state case in, in July of last year, sort of challenging the mask mandates, challenging everything else. And that one ended up going up to Kentucky Supreme Court. And they said that, you know, he had all these crazy powers because the legislature delegated it to him. And then, um, you know, legislature came in, in in January and February of this year and like took some of those powers back and said, no, you just can't keep doing this as often as you want and as long as you want and everything else. And and then he tried to argue that he had implicit constitu state constitutional powers to do whatever he wanted as long as he wanted. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And so we, we sued him again. And um, that's abuse of power. Yeah, huge abuse of power. And we sued him again, just got a, a fantastic quarter, you know, earlier this week, actually, I actually put on expert testimony finally sort of challenging the science behind the mask mandates and the six foot distancing, particularly in light of what's come out in the last 90 days, that this stuff was never really about the droplets. I mean, everybody, if you heard early on, right, it was allegedly all about the droplets, droplet spread, we need masks because droplets spread, we need six foot distance because that's how far droplets project. Science in the last 90 days is it was actually aerosols. It was super, super small, wasn't droplets, masks aren't going to solve it, six foot's not going to solve it. The only thing that's going to solve is you open the windows and you increase the ventilation in the building. And, um, and we had two experts that testify to that. And, and that's all set forth in a 30-page court decision we got this week. It's fantastic. It just undermines all of the science of the lockdowns or all the science behind the lockdowns. And um, I felt, felt like that was a pretty big win. Um, you know, I think I think things are starting to come to a head in the next couple of weeks. It looks like the governor's going to defy that. I know that he, he says he lifted his mandates, but he really hasn't lifted everything. And, and he still is enforcing on people that, that violated while his mandates were in place. He still is enforcing, you know, cases against them. Um, so I suspect we're, there's going to be some fireworks. I'm going to, I'm going to probably end up moving, hold the governor in contempt of court and seeing if I can get the, the judge to send the sheriff's deputies out to put the governor in handcuffs. 
Um, Wouldn't that know, be a sight? <laughs> that'll be fun. That'll be fun. So, um, you know, that th- th- I think that's where that's headed. I mean, it just, you know, we've we got a very lawless, arrogant governor in Kentucky. You know, I guess to some degree, most governors are somewhat arrogant, but ours is Ours is really arrogant, I think, in part because he believes the Supreme Court of the states got his back no matter what he does. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's it from my perspective in terms of last year. we've um, There was a couple other lawsuits I filed, too. The Apartment Association, he prohibited evictions, which, you know, if you're a property owner, and particularly if you're not a big property owner, but you're a small property owner, you know, that could be your only source of rent um, or money, you know, income. So he banned evictions. You know, there were landlords that were getting the shaft and then um, closed down all the schools in November, including the religious schools. And so we filed a lawsuit there. I'm, I'm trying to hold him individually liable in that case, jury trial to, you know, to, to, to hold his feet to the fire, which I'm looking forward to. But, um, you know, I mean, it's, I think we filed seven or eight federal lawsuits, wow. uh, two state lawsuits. And we're we're batting probably ninety to ninety five percent on the win rate, um, but you know it's 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 just it's that's pretty a, good. <laughs> that's that's pretty solid. It's it's good. It's we research what we do and we tell people no, even if it makes them mad. Um, you know, we've told people no and it made it's made them mad. Um, facts don't care about your feelings, right? <laughs> well, the law doesn't care about your feelings either, right? I mean, yeah. it's either unconstitutional or it's not. And you know, I I. I I've told TJ this because he's TJ's interning with my law firm this summer. He just finished his first year of law school. You make your money deciding what cases to take, um, and you try and take only the good ones, so you're not spending your time on the dogs. And you know that's just just the economics of the practice. So yeah, no, of course, yeah, TJ, let's get you in on this. You know that was no, that was all really, really good insight. You know, especially to know the real nitty gritty that you guys had to d- endure you know, due to the, you know, the abuse of power, you know, that the Kentucky governor displayed. So TJ, I mean, I don't know if you want to dive more into this or really, because what I really want to go into was um, how the legislature handled this again, because the Republicans dominate, like with the veto proof majority, like could essentially halt Andy Bashir's you know, ability, you know, at least on paper should be able to block whatever Bashir wants to do whenever they want. But Oddly enough, it didn't seem like to be the case as far as I'm concerned. Like, you know, obviously you're in the state, so mind if you give me a little bit more insight into what the legislature did or did not do. Politicians are absolute cowards. They care about only three things, which is getting elected, getting reelected, and getting elected to higher office. Amen. Um, when you look at what the legislature did, like Savannah Maddox introduced an amendment that would have stopped the lockdowns before they would have happened. House leadership killed it. Senate leadership has said it's never going to happen. Um, through the governor's lawless leftism, there were major calls to have the governor impeached over this because at a certain point he knew he was violating the constitution. Open records showed that when he sent Kentucky state police out to threaten me and my fellow churchgoers with arrest for going to church on Easter Sunday, the chief of KSP told him this is clearly a first amendment issue. And Bashir said, I don't care. Enforce it anyway. So there was a, there was an attitude for that. The, Senate Majority Leader Damon Thayer was at a Women's Republicans of Central Kentucky meeting and pointed out that impeachment's never going to happen. But after this legislative session, he talked about how, oh, I would have loved to have impeached Andy Bashir. Just ref- these guys are just, they're cowards, they're liars. Um, Senator Warren. Huh? Yeah, like constantly like doing a 180 like on various right. issues. Right. And you had Senate Bill 1. This was the bill to rein in the governor's powers. Um, 
they based some of the wording office of Animatics's bill request 130, which would have substantially reigned in the governor's powers. Um, there was language, however, in Senate Bill 1 that would have grown the governor's powers, the original drafting of it. Um, it took it took a massive mobilization of the people to give the legislatures a piece of their mind to actually get something that was even even halfway as good as what we were expecting. Um, Senate Bill 1 is not perfect, but it does make it to where if the governor's emergency goes on for more than 30 days, the orders automatically expire or he has to call a special, a special session in order to renew them. Um, it's not perfect. House Bill 1 was another bill that wasn't perfect at first. This bill, when it was originally drafted, would have essentially put the future of Kentucky businesses into the hands of Joe Biden CDC. But then Adrian Southworth, who I'm sure you're familiar with, put in a uh, yes. put in an amendment in the Senate that made it to where businesses only had to essentially publish a plan showing that they intend to follow the CDC guidance or the or the state regulations, whichever are least restrictive. Right. And it is, I mean, it it that was actually a good piece of legislation. But you want to talk about legislative cowardice? You have House Bill 360. This was based off of part of BR 130, Savannah bill that didn't get it passed into law. But um, Lynn Beckler was the one who introduced this. This bill made it to where the governor could not revoke the licenses of business owners who disobeyed COVID orders. Right. Um, House leadership killed that bill because they don't want to be defending lawbreakers. Ooh. And there's a... Uh, there, there, there's, there's going to be some punishment for that one, to say the least. Huh, what kind of punishment are you uh, implying there, TJ? <laughs> Try and get them out? I mean, some of them definitely have to go. Um, Chris, if you want to talk a little, be- a little bit about that as well, because Chris and I have been working on those a but... Share, you know, what we have planned for those folks next year. I mean, there'll be some money, there'll be some mail, there'll be some doors, there'll be some primaries, you know, maybe a couple win at the doors, maybe a little yell help here and there, you know, but I, I think, you know, we're going to up the ante. We're about to put out a scorecard. Um, and I expect some wailing and gnashing of teeth as a result of that. Um, you know, I think, it, you know, I mean, you lobby, you push, you try and push folks within the legislature to do the right thing. And if they refuse to listen, then you, then I think you have to demonstrate that there's, you know, meaningful consequences that legislators care about. Um, you know, maybe there'll be a member of leadership or two that gets a primary. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I think we have to do to cause credible sort of, you know, responsiveness in the, in the, in the future from these folks, if we're not getting it now and we're not getting it now, what we're getting now is good old boy club stuff. So. Right. Yeah. So it seems like there's a lot of, uh, I guess, you know, um, they call it establishment interference, as we'd say, you know, as I would probably call it, essentially. I mean, like, I don't know how many names like you have been memorizing or the names of the people who have been essentially like trying to water down or even stop, you know, the uh, the legislation that, you know, Maddox and Southworth have proposed to really rein in the governor's powers. Like, you know, what were they doing to do that? Like, how are they able to, you know, like whether try to table it or, you know, try to water it down? Like, what's, like, the legislative process behind that? Like, how, how do they try to do that? And for what? Um, so the first thing that they have is the current legislative rules establishes a committee on committees, which is entirely comprised of leadership. And leadership gets to decide what committees bills are put into, but they've changed the rules this year to make it even more nefarious to where now they're not even setting up kill committees anymore if they don't want a bill to pass, 
under the new legislative rules, they don't even have to refer the bill to a committee. So Savannah Maddox's um, bill request 130, I forget what number it wound up with, but it never saw the light of day outside the committee on committees. They killed the bill that really effectively reigns in the governor's powers so that way their establishment watered down version could get through. Um, you right. have other issues where you'll have, ultimately the big goal of leadership is to keep a unified front within their party so as a result, they water down legislation, whether it's through committee substitutes, whether it's through competing bills that accomplish, that are alleged to accomplish the same things. Another one of their tools is the Legislative Research Commission, where legislators go to have bills drafted and LRC answers to leadership. So LRC tells them, this representative just asked for a bill that does this. Do you, what do you guys want us to do with that? At which point you'll get a bill that barely looks like what you wanted out of it. Those are just some ways with it. I, I mean, you have instances where they'll have a bill passed and they will, they'll have, make it to where a bill passes. And then when the governor vetoes it, they'll have one house, one chamber override the veto and the other one won't. That's what happened with one of Adrian Southworth's bill that, uh, that prevented, uh, voting machines that connect to the internet. For example, I mean, and then, of course, you'll have dirty tricks where whenever most of the legislature's eating dinner or taking a break, you'll have state representatives like Adam Koenig come in and introduce four amendments that completely destroy the purpose of the bill just to, uh, just to, it's just for the sake of personal pettiness. I mean, it's, but of course, those are all techniques that we get to take advantage of too now. I mean, we use the Senate committee sub-process to get House Bill 1 to be a bill we're supporting. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't know if this was like a completely different thing, but I heard through the grapevine through our, uh, you know, through someone we know well in Kentucky, uh, Autumn Robinson. Uh, she always, she was always, she always rants to me about how there was like this one, um, I don't know if it was a, a judiciary committee within the Kentucky legislature, essentially just like, um, a group that, you know, was supposed to investigate and impeach Bashir over these powers. And again, like she essentially told me, quote, that like the, what the head legislator said was like, quote, yeah, we like Bashir did violate the Kentucky state constitution. He did do he did commit impeachable offenses with, you know, his alleged abuses of power, but we're not going to like it's not going to happen. Like we're not going to do it anyway. You know, it, like is that like is that something that you can elaborate on cuz like that seems kind of like bewildering, especially, you know, even if you want to do it politically speaking, like that's yeah. you know, that's that's crazy. Um Chris, do you want to handle that one? Yeah, I mean, it's it We've got so many problems, and it all starts and ends with with legislative leadership in terms of playing with bills. I mean, I you know, I wish we could I wish we could figure out which of these legislators. I, I wish there was a provision that required public votes on anyone that's controlling legislation. I mean, that to me would be awesome. No one would know who's voting for these people. It's common sense. I mean, Massey tried to do that at the federal level with the CARES Act. <laughs> So. And now we don't know, right? Now we don't know. You know, we don't know who's supporting these guys. And so they all kind of hide behind leadership. In fact, what we just, what TJ and I just did, we're putting out a scorecard probably next week. Um, and so every bill, every good bill that, that got killed, we actually are punishing leadership for killing. Um, and like, I don't think a, a single member of House and Senate leadership is getting anything better than an F from us in terms of liberty scores. But we kind of have a big social media following. I expect 
that's going to just absolutely incense these yep. people. But, you know, that's, I mean, if, if the public is incensed with them and they're drawing primary challenges because of it, then maybe they'll stop, like, killing our critical pieces of legislation. That's my hope. So Yeah, and, and let's apply this to the impeachment committee. Um, leadership set up a kill committee to essentially make it to where Andy Bashir would stay in office. Um, I disagree with the idea of, of having a petition process to to formally start an, an impeachment committee because the legislative process works as it currently is. And Chris and I both knew this was what was going to happen whenever these guys set up this petition was that they were going to set it up with the people who have said beforehand they're not going to impeach the governor, no matter what they turned up. They turned up a lot of stuff. The thing that I was talking about where it just clearly showed that Andy Bashir knew he was violating the Constitution when he did it. That stuff that they turned up through their through through their investigation, and yet even that wasn't enough for them to say this guy's got to go. And it's part of legislative re leadership, the establishment, and the RPK and the Republican Party of Kentucky working together because RPK views Andy Bashir as a good fundraising tool. So these guys ultimately took this killed impeachment and wound up sticking these uh, these petitioners with a $45,000 cost bill, um, which is a violation of your right to, put, to petition the government, but I think that Chris is way better situated to handle that part which of the discussion. It makes sense to me, though, because you mentioned fundraising tool. Like, I don't know a better way to really, you know, draw up support or to really stand for liberty than to, you know, essentially impeach a governor who's, you know, excessively, vi you know, violated emergency powers, you know, given if proven, and it seems to be the case with Governor Bashir. So, you know, you, you would think that the Republicans would take advantage of that and just be like, yeah, like, this is, you know, this is victory for liberty. This is victory for the principles of small government that we always preach. But, you know, like, they're just getting the wrong idea in terms of fundraising tool, if you ask me. Like, I don't, I, I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't imagine, like, a better way to really rally your support, you know, for re-election or for higher office than to say, yeah, I got rid of this tyrannical governor. I got rid of this governor that abused their executive powers that violated the state or the federal constitution like that you know the fact they didn't do that is just it's still bewildering yeah and on the base level it makes sense on the other hand of it though if it weren't for if it weren't for whistleblowers like chris if it weren't for people like andrew cooper or at brood you wouldn't the people wouldn't know what's going on here our rpk strategy was actually sound if they it would have been sound had they included Chris and Andrew and other people in this, in this, in this, uh, in the, in their equation here. They figured that the best fundraising strategy is the existence of a boogeyman and they wanted Andy Bashir to be that boogeyman. Someone that they are opposing so that way they can continue to raise money to fight Bashir. Um, but ultimately right. they didn't predict that Chris would expose that, that that they're using this to raise money, and ultimately RPK's lost a lot of money for that, and I think they're regretting their decision now, because I, I think they realize they're in a little bit of trouble right now. Karma. Yeah, and I actually want to touch upon, um, or mention Andrew Cooperwriter next, because um, I actually, like, I met up with you guys a while back when I was visiting Kentucky to see Autumn, um, you know, at, at Brood, which, like, again, I know a little bit, but you know, I'd love for you to Chris to explain like how Brood essentially came into the political spotlight. And plus, I also heard, I forgot the name, but there's kind of like that pro Bashir counter, count, like counter company or counter coffee company that like rivals with them. And 
you know, Governor Bashir was getting petty to the point where he was literally taking photos with the owners of this, uh, you know, of that coffee company, you know, to like spite brood and all that. It, so it's literally like a coffee civil war, which I, which is, it's kind of funny to me. Like it's really petty, but so, you know, yeah, we'll about that. yeah. So Coop, um, Coop was one of two Kentucky businesses. The governor shut down all indoor dining, period. And you know, he had capacity restrictions of like fifty percent capacity throughout most of the pandemic. Right, 33% capacity, but he shut down all indoor dining, I mean, towards the end of November of 2020. And um, there were two restaurants that basically said, up yours, we're going to do it anyways. Um, one was Brood. Um, Brood right. was actually pretty bold in doing that. The other one was Beans, another restaurant that was pretty brave up in Northern Kentucky. The Beans guy actually got charged criminally for operating his, his, his restaurants. Andrew, they just oh, wow. sued, sued him for an injunction. I'll tell you about Beans in a minute. Um, they sued Andrew for an injunction. And, and what I told Andrew at the time was I said, let's just argue the governor's orders and we'll argue you're a, you're a event facility instead of a restaurant because you host events there and the governor's orders are ambiguous and we'll just make the argument. Right. And, um, and if a court tells you that you need to comply and you need to, you know, shut, stop indoor dining, then, then we'll stop indoor dining. And so they, uh, Andrew stayed open for like a week. Um, they actually, they, they served him with an emergency alcohol order, um, as well to stop all alcohol sales inside. And I told Andrew, I was like, don't mess with the ABC because there's like serious criminal stuff that's associated with the alcohol stuff that like, it just isn't worth like, I mean, they will send you to jail for that um, for sure for operating without the alcohol license. So he, you know, he did not, um, he didn't do that in my advice, but he, you know, like I'm not going to comply with the stupid, you know, with these stupid orders. Um, And, uh, you know, and I think I think we can make the argument that you think we've got, and so we did. And the judge ultimately rejected it, put on an injunction. And my advice to Andrew at that point was, well, let's comply with the injunction. And the injunction said that he was not allowed to serve food indoors, but it said nothing at all about allowing other people to eat indoors and to have his facility open. And it was amazing. This food truck kept pulling up right in front of Coop's coffee shop for like a week and a half. <laughs> serving food and drink and people were grabbing it and going inside you gotta love loopholes you gotta love legal loopholes that's great Coop was in full compliance with the order that the court issued which is funny and uh, to kind of mention like a similarity because um i went to new you know went to new york city a while you know a few months back i mean i've been there numerous times but a few months back on this one particular visit, I noticed that there were similar rules that uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio imposed, or, or Governor Cuomo for the entire state, but I know for Bill de Blasio in particular, now, you know, he banned indoor dining, but, you know, the I, I'm not the biggest expert, like, the exact legality of it, but I know somewhere along the lines of, you know, you're allowed to set up, you know, outdoor dining, essentially, but it didn't really state too many rules, like, in terms of, you know, like, the type of construction or whatever. And I mentioned that because they essentially built like not even tents, like essentially like they just reconstructed like new, like mini houses or mini extensions to the fronts of the restaurants, you know, but legally speaking under those orders, they counted as quote, it, you know, outdoor dining, you know, even though a lot of them had like, you know, lighting and, you know, of course the ceiling over their head or sometimes even their own ventilation. Like it's the, what was the purpose of it? You know, it's like, it's like it didn't make sense anymore. It, it just got ridiculous. So then the news started reporting on Coop, you know, and what he was doing. And they got really mad. And um, and finally they called me up and they're like, what's it going to take to, like, get him just to, like, stop allowing anybody to eat inside? And I said, well, they said, you know, if 
it, maybe you give him his food license back, maybe he'll comply. And they agreed, and, and he did, and that was sort of how that went. But they're still trying to take away his alcohol license. And actually, their attempts to take away his alcohol license, I think, is going to ultimately end up being some state-level fireworks in the next month and a half because, in, in part, their attempts to do that violates one of the statutes that the General Assembly passed. And I've got a court order that says the governor and all, everybody acting in concert with him has to comply with the statute, and they're violating that court order right now. And what's going to end up happening, first of all, is I'm going to get some clarity on that court order Tuesday morning um, and make really clear that it applies statewide because um, before you could have anyone jailed in Kentucky for not complying with the court order, the court order has to be clear and unambiguous. And so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to make it really clear because I don't know that it's 100% clear now. I'm going to make it really clear so that they have no basis to appeal. And then I'm going to move to hold them in contempt. And I suspect what's going to happen is the Alcohol Beverage Commission, uh, the commissioners and their attorney, are going to end up with Boone County Sheriff deputies um, dispatched to their location to put them in the handcuffs for not complying with this order. That's where this is headed. And the turnabout, I think, is awesome because these are the folks that have been threatening people with jail and fines for like the last year and a half. Um, there's going to be some karma with us doing it back to them. And, and this war is like brewing. Unintended? Unintended. Brewing, yeah. Uh, unintended and, uh, and maybe intended a little. Um, so, you know, I'm looking forward to that fight, um, you know, and... Uh, I mean, we'll see how that goes. You know, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so that's where that's headed. But no, Brood stayed open. The, the beans guy, though, that was running the beans, he was criminally charged. And, um, jeez. And, uh, we were, I was out on like Fox News National on Cavuto, um, talking about that. And I just said, look, I'm just going to do a jury demand. Um, I filed a jury demand. The prosecutor's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to put the governor's orders on trial. Good luck. This will be fun. I'm going to put it in front of a local jury. Um, they actually charged him in two different counties, one one where each of his restaurants were open. They ended up ultimately dismissing that because the the fiasco that the jury trial would have caused and putting the governor on trial in two different counties and his orders on trial, I just think those county prosecutors, they didn't like it and they knew that I was going to make a giant circus out of it. And uh, I was going to make a giant circus out of it. I was looking forward well, to making a circus. And, um, and so they, uh, they, they backed down. They ended up dismissing the charges. But, you know. I, sometimes you just got to like, you got to have people that are just willing to go to the mat and we did. And that's kind of how that went. But, but, you know, the governor, it's interesting. There was something, there was an article that came out today about why the governor would possibly lift the orders, the restaurant orders in mid December amongst rising cases. And there was this big expose about why he would do that. And like these reporters were stunned about why he would possibly do it. And this article that just came out like in the last like two days, and I'm like, I know why he did it, because we ended up, because Beans and Brood stood up, like 500 other restaurants were going to open on December 16th, and the last thing the governor wanted was have all, all that egg on his face, and people disobeying his orders, and the embarrassment of it. He didn't do it because he wanted to. He did it because we basically, you know, Beans and Brood organized mass civil disobedience to the point that, like... It forced his hand. Yeah, forced his hand. Public pressure, you know, the pressure that forced his hand. So, you know, there's a lot of ways, I think, to advance liberty, and sometimes it's just telling the tyrants no. Yeah. I mean, like, again, like, I know, you know, talking about local state legislature isn't as hot of a topic as, like, you know, Congress or Senate or president, especially not the, compared to the presidency, but, you know, 
what are your plans? Like, do you, do you know any uh, candidates that are looking to run that are far more liberty-minded and far more willing to, um, you know, hold uh, state executive leaders accountable for, you know, abusing their powers, you know, for future reference? Like, who, like who do you got that stepping up to the plate in that regard? I'll let TJ talk about this more, but we have, we have a, um, a number of people are going to have primaries next year that I think otherwise didn't, and, and I'm looking forward to it. We have... I don't know how many are public, but let's just say this much. There is a state senator in the state of Kentucky who introduced red flag gun confiscations as a Republican and endorsed Thomas Massey's primary challenger in 2020. Oh, wasn't it that, um, what was that person's name? Oh, Todd McMurtry. He, yeah. yeah. McMurtry was the, top of the congressional candidate, but the, the state senator is Paul Hornback. Um, anti-gun. He's voted against some of the. He's voted against some of the bills to get rid of uh, get rid of Andy Bashir's powers as well. Um, we have a guy who's on fire for liberty. I mean, we have people looking to primary folk who uh, stab the liberty movement in the back. Uh, Kathy, you worked for Yale whenever we made a few endorsements oh, in twenty twenty. Jennifer Decker, wasn't it? Yeah, we may be regretting one one of those endorsements. Her that she wants that seed that that Hornback has too, which. Oh well, if I want to be, if they want to make that a fight, they can make that a fight. Um, there are, let's just say this much: there's plenty of pain to go around. There's plenty of people out there, and running primaries in Kentucky is not that expensive. And we are actively seeking out candidates. But if you fail to uphold your oath to rein in the governor's powers, if you played role, if you played games with people's liberty in order to advance yourself politically there are people that are coming for you on that. If you were one of the more than a dozen Republicans that introduced a bill to raise the gas tax in the middle of the greatest economic crisis I've experienced in my lifetime, there are people who will be coming for you. We don't care that you used to be a Rand Paul staffer. Yeesh. I mean, I'm sure Senator Rand Paul would be pretty disappointed hearing that. Like, oh, yes. What? I mean, that's the thing that's just uh, so that's so I mean, unfortunate. And endorsed one of the biggest pro big government, you know, Republicans in the state house. And I know it was a general election. And I know, you know, I mean, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little fired up about that still. Um, yep. And, you know, we've recruited a primary opponent for her. Actually, this lady was the one that was out recruiting and funding the person that was running against Thomas Massey. And then Rand turned out and, and endorsed her in the general. I mean, and I can tell you, Thomas is a little fired up over that still. Um, I imagine he's probably like, what the heck, Rand? Like, do you yeah. not know the the background behind this lady? <laughs> right, right. Love, Love Rand. Some members of the staff are just giving him the wrong advice, and and anything about Kim Mosier is that way. She, despite being claiming to be one hundred percent pro life, voted to give thirty five million dollars to an abortion clinic. She voted against constitutional carry. Uh, she's the reason that we still have cert certificate of need, which is why people in rural eastern Kentucky are dying on 45-minute long ambulance trips whenever whenever people have wanted to build hospitals, but her approval board keep rejecting it because, they're, because her husband sits on the board for St. Elizabeth Healthcare, which holds a monopoly on hospitals in northern Kentucky. Wow, those things are totally not related at all. <laughs> but they're not liberty. They're not liberty whatsoever. No, absolutely. And that's just crazy, guys. I mean, you know, to think like there's a there's a lot of good liberty legislators in Kentucky that I've seen. I mean, far more than what unfortunately most people in Northeast have to experience, bar New Hampshire and maybe some parts of Maine. But 
you know, it's we. there's still a whole fight ahead. You know, again, I appreciate everything you guys have been doing in the state of Kentucky. I mean, I'm really excited to see, you know, who you guys will be endorsing. Maybe in the future I could get one of those, at least one or multiple of those candidates on, you know, in future episodes as that happens. But, you know, like, th- this is just really exciting. You know, I really commend you guys, you know, for the efforts that you've been doing over the past year because I know COVID has just been, you know, a major hit on all of us. Just it has really affected us in multiple ways, you know. So, again you know, this, you guys have really been putting in the work, you know, that most people will just talk about, you know, they say that they say they want to do in social media, but you know, you, you guys are the ones that are actually going out there to do the work. Um, but yeah, so again, thank you guys for listening. You know, I hope you enjoy this, you know, hope you enjoy this episode. Um, Chris Weist, TJ Roberts, again, thank you so much for coming on, you know, for coming on to the show. It was a really good conversation. I really learned a lot on what's going on in Kentucky and that, you know, some ways they're not too far off of Jersey, tyrannically speaking, you know, but there's still work to do for sure. But, um, you know, be, be sure to be sure to like and subscribe the channel. Um, I also have this audio version on SoundCloud, on Spotify, on iTunes. Make sure to follow me on there as well. I also have, um, you know, my Instagram, Twitter, all the handles I have on you know, are in, are in the description, you know, I, ha- I also have a link tree, you know, if you want to just hit it all in one page, but, um, again, thanks guys so much for coming on, all right, we'll be talking soon, oh, weast, my <laughs>